our doings with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, by your mercy, obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Earlier this week, I had the great pleasure of going to see the Book of Mormon at Gamage Theater, as I'm sure many of you did. The Book of Mormon is a Tony award-winning play about two Mormon missionaries who are quite surprised to go to Africa. It's a comedy that wittily and sometimes caustically pokes at the Mormon faith and the task of proclaiming an all-American prophet in a war-torn village across the world. The highlight of the play for me was that the practice of faithful people, the practice of religion itself, wasn't totally thrown under the bus. For all of the skepticism and the pointed commentary, the grand questions the characters were asking are, does this practice give you hope? Does this life of faith that you choose give you a catalyst to look beyond yourself and do some good in the world? And finally, the grand question, is being a faithful person transformative? Today in our readings, we learn about how a relationship with God is transformative, particularly a relationship with God in Christ. We have Ruth, an outsider and an immigrant, whose love for her mother-in-law, Naomi, takes her away from her home. She tells her, Whither thou goest, I shall go, and your people shall become my people. Naomi plays matchmaker for Ruth and Boaz, and their love and marriage results in their son, Obed. Obed begat Jesse, Jesse begat David, and generations later, Jesus was born in a manger. Today in the Gospel of Mark, another widow is drawing the attention of God. And this time, it's in the treasury of the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is in the final days of his earthly ministry. Three years of travel and preaching and teaching and healing has led to this point, to this day in the temple yard. A few days ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a colt in triumph, with all the people on the street laying down palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's the week before the Passover celebrations. For weeks, faithful Jewish pilgrims have been on the journey to Jerusalem, some from as far away as Rome itself. It is the highest of high holy days, and one of the only feasts that requires every faithful person, every man and woman, to participate. The population of Jerusalem swells by over a million people. Jewish historians speak beautifully to the transformation of the city, whose walls somehow manage to accommodate this great growth. The temple is cheek to jowl with people, and it's really no wonder that Jesus and his disciples have chosen to be here today. There's no better place to talk and teach. And if you're looking to incite the religious leadership in all its power and authority— then there's no better place than the temple to get yourself killed. And our friend Jesus is well on his way by this point. The temple compound is massive. 
And by design, it gradually allows fewer and fewer people to the high altar. Today, Jesus is in the treasury, where he's been all week long. The treasury is located in the first major court of the temple, called the Court of Women, because it's the farthest that faithful Jewish women are allowed to go. Now, the temple is a place that symbolizes and assures you that you are constantly in relationship with God. And it's the physical place where you, when you have sinned, when you have gone away from God in some way, can come and restore relationship. And this is by a specific process. You begin this transformation first by bathing in a mikvah, one of the pools located near the gates of the city that purify you. And then you go to the temple and pay the half-shekel tax just to get in the grounds. And now you're in the treasury. And if you've come this far, you're here to pray. You're here to learn. And there's a very good chance that you're also here to have a sacrifice performed by a priest on your behalf to remove your sins. Around the court of women, there are 13 collection boxes, and each has a number that corresponds to how the money in that box will be used. There's the tax box, the box for that half shekel I mentioned, and several boxes that correspond to the payment of specific sacrifice. Maybe you don't want anybody to know that your sins correlate to eight doves and three pigeons, or God forbid, a goat or a cow. So you have the option of discreetly depositing your money so that the payment of your sins is covered. Remember that for men, there is the opportunity to see the results of the sacrifice made by the priests. And during Passover, it is uniquely possible that ordinary pilgrims, who are men, will be able to see the sacrifice of their lambs in person. But for women, especially a widow who may not have a male family member or guardian, the treasury and the promise of these boxes is likely as good as it gets. Now back to Jesus. Jesus has purposefully spent his time here in the temple being baited by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, and by the scribes. They've questioned him over and over on points of law and prayer, seeking to entrap him. And Jesus has proved again and again that he is a knowledgeable rabbi and a devout Jewish man. In Mark, right before this passage, Jesus has an interaction with a scribe where the scribe asks him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies with one of the oldest prayers of the Jewish faith, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Unprompted, Jesus adds that the second commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the middle of the treasury, in the week before Passover, where money is being poured into coffers and the air is thick with the smoke of sacrifice, the scribe replies, You are right, teacher, and goes further. Truly, living these two commandments are more important than whole burnt offerings or sacrifice. Think about it. A temple scribe is saying this in the most populated court of the temple during Passover week. Loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and applying the strength of that love to your neighbor promises more transformation and greater relationship with God than any burnt offering or sacrifice. 
Jesus looks at him and says, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, Mark says, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And then Jesus brings up the subject of David, his great ancestor who was from a line conceived by the transformed widow Ruth, when another widow enters the picture. And that brings us to today's passage. Nobody is asking Jesus any more questions. And the temple is swelling with people and the tension is rising, all of it being watched by the thousands of Roman soldiers who were in Jerusalem to quell rising insurrection. Jesus denounces the scribes to the people gathered in the temple. And believe me, that's an uncomfortable denouncement to hear and pronounce while I'm standing up here in long robes and as someone who very much likes to be greeted in marketplaces and have honors at banquets. But the lectionary writers know what they're doing. The scribes might look like devout men, but they are seeking their own glory. Jesus, in the holiest place on earth for the Jewish faithful, is pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious. Friends, is there a sin today that you can think of in mass that does more damage, more isolation, and more pain than the hypocrisy of the religious? I can't. Yet, yet there is this widow. And how do we know that she's a widow? Jesus says so, and we'll take his word for it. But what can we assume about her from this one word? We can assume that she had the security of a husband. She had a place to which she belonged. She had a home and a name. But she has none of that now. And if she has been taken in by her husband's family, she is a burden to them until and if she marries again. She may or may not have children. And she is, above all else, as a widow, defined by living life after death. She's in the temple, which means that she has ritually bathed and paid her taxes. It is likely that she paid also for the sacrifices to cover her sins. But as she's making her way around the court and the collection boxes, she stops to put in her two cents. This collection box is not for taxes or for sins. This collection box is for the gifts given in joy and thanksgiving to the glory of God. Gifts given in joy and thanksgiving to the glory of God alone. Now, we use the phrase, my two cents, to offer an opinion that we will know will probably get overlooked or thrown away. It's usually the only opinion we'll offer in some matter, but it is our final word. Jesus, in the midst of this brood of vipers, sees a woman put in her two cents, a paltry sum that is worth everything to her. I give of myself fully in joy and in thanksgiving to the glory of God. It's probably one of the best sermons ever heard in the temple. Now, I don't often pretend to know the mind of God, but I like to imagine that in this moment, Jesus, who is increasingly frustrated, who is scared by what is to come, is soothed by this widow's action. What is more hopeful? Is there an action more full of hope than for us to give over something fully to God? What is more faithful 
than to give a life for things hoped for but not yet seen. Think about this. We read Jesus saying, She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And you can read that as simply a monetary transaction. But we lose the richness of this meaning in translation. Listen to it this way. She, out of her deep need, cast in her whole life. Or she, out of her desire, rushed to give her very life, her being, and all of her actions. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This woman, this widow who is defined by living life after death, expresses deep, abiding, transformative hope in God. Not because of what has happened to her. No, today her hope is expressed in God's glory alone, freely given with joy and thanksgiving and with everything that she has. This woman who is hopeful in life after death, she is living a resurrection life. In the middle of the temple in Jerusalem on Passover week, this woman is building up the kingdom of God. And she is joyfully and humbly and unknowingly working alongside Jesus himself. Friends, how are you and I to do this? And I mean it. How is God transforming us to be able to give while we are still in deep need? Through relationship, and I'll say it, through religion. We're gathered here today because we desire to draw closer to God. We're responding to that inherent need that we have to feel and to recognize and to worship the God who created us, the God who loves us, and the God whom we seek to transform us. Now, I'm not asking for a testimony here, but I want you to think about what drew you here this morning. Did the power of Christ compel you? Are you hurt or sad or sick? Are you thankful or joyful or happy? Are you lost in searching? Are you blessed by the knowledge that you have been found? Do you seek to deeply know and be fully known? It's worth considering. Gathered here in this place this morning to worship God, we are being transformed in faith by hope. We have come together to put in our two cents about this whole journey with God. We've all bought in, even by just the smallest bit. And we wait with hope to see what unfolds. For the past few weeks and the next, you'll be getting phone calls from your fellow Trinitarians. And not a single one of them will start with the dean saying, Hello, my name is Elder Mendez, and I would like to share with you the most amazing book. I promise. But we do, however, want to connect with you about what brings you here to Trinity. What makes you know that you're a part of this family? 
And as pilgrims together on this journey of faith, we are all being transformed directly and indirectly. How is God working in you? And how is God working through you in the world? It happens simultaneously, you know. As God works in us, God transforms us so that God may work through us. And we want to know how you're responding to that hope. And how do you want to respond with hope here at Trinity? When Jesus compares the scribes to the widow, he sets up a mirror for us. God gives everything. And everything belongs to God. And try as we might, you and I are just stewards, simple caretakers, for a very brief time. So we have to ask ourselves today, do we give thanks for our glory or for God's? Do we, like the scribes, respond in action only for the benefit of being seen? Or do we, like the widow, respond with our whole lives, with our whole hearts and our hands? To be perfectly honest, it's a day-to-day decision, and sometimes an hour-by-hour decision for most of us. But as Christians, we proclaim our hope in the resurrection, and we pursue God hopefully. And in this hope, in this living and believing, we are transformed to the glory of God. Is being a faithful person transformative? Absolutely. And that's my two cents. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose loving hand has given us all that we possess, grant us grace that we may honor you with our substance and may be faithful stewards of your bounty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.